Well, brothers and sisters, remain standing and open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 22. Matthew chapter 22. We will continue our study of the parables of the Lord Jesus Christ, and we are going to uh, this morning look at the uh, parable of the marriage feast, and I will begin after prayer reading from verse 1. Let's pray together. Our gracious Heavenly Father, it is in the name of Christ we come before you asking for your favor, enlightenment, Lord, and instruction. We pray, O Lord, that in this moment you would be so gracious to us to identify and to expose us, Lord, where we need to be exposed, to correct us where we need correction, Lord, where we need growth, Lord, point it out to us. We ask, O Lord, that you would take this parable of the wedding feast and you would Lord, let it be that mirror we look into, Lord, of thy perfect word and law that we would be able to see ourselves either by grace, O Lord, or the need for us to flee to Christ this morning that we might have that grace that we speak so often of and so highly of. So we pray that you would glorify your holy name. We pray that you would glorify Christ and that you would come now and glorify the doctrine of your word, Lord, to our hearts and to our minds and our lives. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. I want to begin reading at verse 1. And Jesus spoke to them again in parables saying, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who gave a wedding feast for his son. And he sent out his slaves to call those who had been invited to the wedding feast, and they were unwilling to come. Again, he sent out other slaves, saying, Tell those who, were, who have been invited, Behold, I have prepared my dinner, my oxen, and my fatted livestock are all butchered, and everything is ready. Come to the wedding feast. But they paid no attention and went their way, one to his own farm, another to his business, and the rest seized his slaves and mistreated them and killed them. But the king was enraged, and he sent his armies and destroyed those murderers and set their city on fire. And then he said to his slaves, the wedding is ready, but those who were invited were not worthy. Go therefore to the main highways, and as many as you find there, invite to the wedding feast. Those slaves went out into the streets and gathered together all they found, both evil and good, and the wedding hall was filled with dinner guests. When the king came in to look over the dinner guest, he saw a man there who was not dressed in wedding clothes. And he said to him, friend, how did you come in here without wedding clothes? And the man was speechless. And then the king said to the servants, bind him hand and foot and throw him into the outer darkness. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth for many are called, but few are chosen. And thus ends the reading of God's word. You may be seated. Well, beloved uh, Matthew is a very hard-hitting expose of 
the scribes and the Pharisees, the leadership that was residing over God's people for quite a long time. In Matthew, our Lord in a series of lessons, interactions, exposes their deep-rooted prejudices and their hypocrisies. I mean, the book opens not just with this genealogy beginning with Abraham, but opens with John the Baptist condemning the scribes and the Pharisees as being a brood of vipers. Not something that any, uh, any person or particularly any ministry should ever relish being called snakes. Matthew is a, the gospel written in order to demonstrate to the Hebrews that they must turn from their self-righteousness to Christ and his righteousness. And it focuses upon the nation of Israel. It focuses upon those children of Abraham. And that's why John the Baptist highlighted that. And that's why Matthew records it, that Abraham can raise up stones. God could raise up the children of Abraham out of the stones. That they had taken an unnecessary privilege and favor and allowed it to become a millstone around their neck. And beloved, this parable is that last parable in a series of parables illustrating and highlighting that ingrained infectious hypocrisy of the scribes and the priests who had confronted Christ after cleansing the temple had confronted him over by the authority that he had to do such a thing. And remember, this is our uh, last week, if you will, the passion week of our Lord Jesus Christ. He is just hours away from his crucifixion, from his, his mock trial his condemnation, where the, the people have accepted him. They have thrown these palm branches down. They have glorified in his entrance into the city. And it's, he's just hours away from them turning upon him and saying, yes, we would rather have a criminal than him. May his blood be upon our hands and the hands of our children. I mean, Jesus is having none of their hypocrisy. It's coming to a fever pitch. It's a rather intense debate or argument or interaction, however you wish to look at it. But our Lord is having none of their hypocrisy. And one parable after another, he is driving he is driving their need to confess their sins and to turn to him as the promised Messiah, God with us. And they are so ingrained in their blindness and their hardness of heart that they can't see who is in front of them. 
And that's what hypocrisy and prejudice does. It blinds us. It hardens our hearts that we can't see the reality that we find ourselves in. And that's where they were. If you look at the end of 21, notice at the end of that parable, what was it that um, they, they came to this reality that Jesus was speaking of them, that he had basically condemned them and he's exposing them to, to not just who them, right? But all who are listening to him. Who's that, whoever is standing there with Christ or with these priests, they're listening to, they're able to watch this interaction and it's damning to these priests and scribes. And they realize it. They realize that they have no solid footing to stand on. They, there, there's nothing that they can do to rebut his rebuttal to them. There's nothing that left for them to even say at this point, but to, to, to go away and to, to begin to figure out how they're going to kill him and get rid of him once and for all. And Jesus takes this third parable, the parable of the wedding feast, and it's a masterful parable, a masterful story of the compassion and grace of Almighty God, the patience He has in the history of the salvation of His people, calling Abraham, bringing even Abraham out of, out of paganism, out of that, that, all that religious idolatry, more than likely uh, star gazers and worshipers, and he brings him, he saves him and his wife, and then he begins to work through Abraham to establish his covenant, that covenant of grace, expanding the covenant of grace through Abraham and saying, Abraham, it's going to be through you that I'm going to bless all the families of the earth. It's going to be with your seed. And Paul tells us in Galatians that that promised seed to Abraham was Christ. That the Lord is going to preserve the lineage of Abraham in order to bring the promised Messiah back, promised back in Genesis chapter 3 and verse 15. That he was going to use the Hebrew people to bring forth the Messiah into the world where all families of the earth, all men, all women, all who call upon him would have everlasting life and be blessed. And the Hebrews had taken that promise and eternalized it and turned it into a works salvation, into a works righteousness. And, and they were not able to see uh, that God had sent the Messiah in their day. There were some who did. And they followed him and they worshiped him. In fact, uh, turn with me to Matthew chapter 8. Well, let's look at, well, let me, let me demonstrate a little, just the book itself. If you turn back to Matthew chapter 3, we'll see 
uh, John the Baptist, and he has been sent as the forerunner of Christ. In verse 1, he says, Now in those days John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea, saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. For this is the one referred to by Isaiah the prophet when he said, The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Make ready the way of the Lord. Make his path straight. Now, look down at um, verse 7. Now, notice John is out baptizing out there by the river, and he noticed in the crowd some of these Pharisees and Sadducees, right? These religious officers of his day. And he says to them, but when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming for baptism, he said to them, you brood of vipers who warned you to flee from the wrath to come. What a greeting. That is, John is recognizing their, how corrupt they are. He's recognizing how polluted these offices have become under their guidance and direction. He says in verse 8, Therefore bear fruit in keeping with repentance. And do not suppose that you can say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father. For I say to you that from these stones God is able to raise up children of Abraham. So you can see just how Matthew opens the book up. I mean, he starts from the beginning helping the Hebrews who this gospel was intended for to come to this realization not to miss Christ, not to miss the condition, the reality that they are really in, but don't miss the reality of who are the true sons of Abraham, those who have faith in the promised Messiah. Uh, Matthew chapter 7. Matthew chapter 7, I believe it's as you read the, the Sermon on the Mount and as you see our Lord exposing the, the, um, the I would say, the very empty, the empty teaching of the scribes and the Pharisees, the uh, self-righteous teaching, Jesus is, tells them, he goes, you've heard these things, but let me tell you the truth. And then in chapter 7, verse 15, he tells them to beware of the false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves, and you will know them by their fruits. Now, I believe he's talking about these scribes and Pharisees as we go along here. This is not the only time he uses this illustration to describe them. Verse 21, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven will enter. I, I believe he's talking primarily, particularly about these scribes and these Pharisees, these ministers, if you will, of the covenant of grace who are not being faithful who were not able to lead these families and the people of God into the streams of everlasting salvation and mercy, demonstrating the compassion of Almighty God. Remember last week when we looked at Matthew chapter 23 and all the woes that Jesus brings to those religious leaders. Now look at Matthew, now chapter 8. 
And look at the sea. Verse uh, seven. And Jesus said to him, this is the centurion, I will come and heal him. He's asked for his son to be healed. He's asked Jesus to come heal him. But the centurion said, Lord, I am not worthy for you to come under my roof. But just to say the word and my servant will be healed for I also am a man under authority with soldiers under me. And I say to this one, go, and he goes, and to another one, come, and he comes, and to my slave, do this, and he does it. And now when Jesus heard this, he marveled and said to those who were following, truly I say to you, I have not found such great faith with anyone in Israel. And I say to you that many will come from east and west and recline at the table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven, but the sons of the kingdom will be cast out into the outer darkness. And in that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. You can see what Jesus is doing here clearly, can't we? We can see that through the, in the book of Matthew, he's highlighting this system of, of idolatry, of hypocrisy and prejudices that have kept them away from God. It kept them away from God. It kept them from recognizing the, the promised Messiah when he's standing before them. And Matthew doesn't want his readers to miss it. He doesn't want us to miss it either. Look at Matthew chapter 15. I'm just, I'm just highlighting just a couple of, of things here before we get into the parable itself. But in, in Matthew chapter 15, again, the verse 1, some of the Pharisees and scribes came to Jesus from Jerusalem and said, why do your disciples break the tradition of the elders? See, that's what was more important. Not the word of God not the teaching of Scripture, not the will of God, but their traditions that were contrary to Scripture. Nothing wrong with tradition in and of itself. But what was wrong with these traditions is that they, they were the opposite of sound doctrine. They were the opposite of the teaching of God's Word. And notice in verse 3, and he answered and said to them, why do you yourselves transgress the commandment of God for the sake of your tradition? For God said, honor your father and mother, and he who speaks evil of father and mother is to be put to death. But you say, whatever says, whoever says to his father and mother, whatever I have that would help you has been given to God. Is it not the honor of his father or his mother? And by this, you invalidated the word of God for the sake of your tradition. You hypocrites. And rightly did Isaiah prophesy of you, this people honors me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. But in vain do you worship me, teaching as doctrines the precepts of men. And then Jesus goes on to tell them, it's not what's on the outside of man that defiles him, but it's what's on the inside of man. Now, here's my point here. Look at verse 12. The disciples came and said to him, why do you know, uh, said to him, do you know that the Pharisees were offended when they heard this statement? And he answered and said, every plant which my heavenly father did not plant shall be uprooted. Let them alone. They are blind guides of the blind. And if a blind man guides a blind man, both will fall into the pit. Well, I hope that demonstrates something of what I said about Matthew being an expose that, that 
that Jesus is coming and he's exposing this corrupt system of self-righteousness through his teaching and interaction with the scribes, the Pharisees, the chief priests, with the crowds, and even with his disciples. And we'll find this in the parable itself. Let's begin looking at the parable now. In verse 2, Jesus does compare this story, this parable, with the kingdom of heaven. He says, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who gave a wedding feast for his son. And he sent out his slaves to call those who had been invited to the wedding feast, and they were unwilling to come. I mean, we, it doesn't take much to understand that what Jesus is now doing is in this story, he's highlighting their stubbornness. He's already highlighted their hypocrisy. He's already highlighted in the other parables their, their uh, hypocrisy and saying, yes, I will go work in the vineyard and never going. Right? He, he, he's already highlighted this, the, the malice that they have toward the Son of God in the second parable. And in this one, Jesus is highlighting the, the great compassion and generosity of God in heaven as this king. What did this king do? This king was giving a wedding feast. This king had planned a wedding feast for his son. And he sent out his slaves to what? To call those who had been invited to the wedding feast. And it says at the end of that verse 3 that they were unwilling to come. Now, without a doubt, he is speaking of these scribes and Pharisees. They are unwilling. There is this entrenched hardness of heart that is, that is just holding them back from seeing and understanding and melting under this gracious, benevolent king and his invitation to come to this feast. It is almost as if the kindness and greatness of God hardens them even more. You know, it's very difficult if you find yourself struggling to like someone and they are just killing you with kindness, right? We, we understand the term, kill them with kindness, and it's just, it's even more of an aggravation when there are people that we are struggling to enjoy are very genuinely kind to us. And this seems to almost be the effect that's taking place here. Jesus is highlighting the benevolence of God in this king. How God in his own compassion and saving mercies way back yonder called Abraham out of paganism to come and be his son and have faith in Jesus Christ. There was nothing in Abraham 
that moved God to save him. There was no excellence, if you will, in Abraham that moved God to think, I need to give this person salvation. I need this person on my team. Not at all. That doesn't happen. God is no respecter of persons. God does not respect anyone and all who have ever been born are all guilty before God. They're all hard in their hearts and there is nothing but natural malice and hatred toward God and the things of God, naturally in every person. Now that's manifested differently and in varying degrees, but the truth remains the same in all of us. The same with Abraham. It was God's calling of Abraham. God's call to Abraham, bringing him out of that paganism, that devilish paganism, and bringing him into this relationship of favor and grace and undeserved blessing. And that call has now made a people for God's namesake. They were called for that purpose. They were called to be the, the light and salt of the earth, if you will. It was going to be through the, the Hebrew people that what? The light of the gospel would shine to all the nations surrounding it. The parable demonstrates and shows us that God is so kind and so benevolent and so giving that he had prepared this feast. Now, what is this feast? Well, the, the feast, beloved, is the gospel. It's the, the, in general, the covenant of grace, the outward manifestation of the means of grace in the visible church. It's these privileges that, that men are given when they come to know Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. That's why the church is such a blessing. Not just because it's a landing place for those who come to faith, whether sitting at home and reading their Bibles or listening to a sermon on the radio or, or some friend uh, interacting with some friend and, and, and Christ is presented to them and, and they repent of their sins and then they find them a home, a spiritual home, a, a, a spiritual family to go and attach themselves to. And yes, the church is a mixture of people, but yet what a privilege and what what a blessing that even here this morning, if you are here and you have never tasted of the sweetness of salvation, you have the opportunity now to do so. You have the opportunity. The Lord is calling you right now to his own son, his only begotten son, that whosoever should believe in him will have everlasting life right now. It's the gospel. This feast, beloved, is that grace of the gospel, that undeserved grace of the gospel. And Jesus is reminding these priests and scribes that they were undeserving of this favor, yet they had it. And look how they were treating it. Look how they had become so infected 
these blessings and these privileges, these benefits that should always soften our hearts, should always remind us of how unworthy we are. But it had hardened their hearts and had created such a, a, a damning hypocrisy and pride and prejudice that just polluted and contaminated everything they did. And that's why Jesus could tell them, you, you don't worship me. Drawing near to me with your lips only is not worship, as we shall see even from the parable. It's not worship. And brothers and sisters, listen to me. God requires more of you this morning and at all other times, but even now in in the public and open worship of the living God, he desires more of us than just our voices. Amen? He's requiring that our hearts would be melted and molded to this profession of faith, to the confession of these doctrines to the system and the truth of God's word. And that we should have a great appreciation and a greater appreciation because the more we know who we are in Christ, the more we can say and confess how unworthy we are of these blessings. We don't want to be like the scribe who goes into the temple and he, God's providence happens to be standing beside this wailing sinner on his knees, beating his chest, making all kinds of ruckus. Maybe whispering, but whispering in such a voice that can be heard, Lord, have mercy on me, a sinner. And then that corrupt, dead heart say, God, thank you, I'm not like that. Deadness. Someone who's never come to understand the deep love and mercy of Almighty God. No, no, no. Someone who actually thinks they deserve to be saved. God needs me. He needs me. Where would you be without me? Where would God be without me? And you can, I think, tell just by that little demonstration of how embarrassing such a comment is if we were to make it. How damning it is. How corrupt that idea is and even contagious. We see that Jesus has not a problem highlighting God's compassion and his grace and his willingness to be a saving God. And he goes on to tell us, he says, this is how it works. He says that he sent out his slaves to do what? To call those who had been invited to the wedding feast and they were unwilling to come. Now you would think 
One thing that makes the parable somewhat um, contemplative is the idea that, look, who doesn't like going to a feast when it's free? Who does not like being invited to weddings? Who doesn't like being invited to, to these nice spreads when, when, you know, those that really know how to, you know, have a good time? And there's this invitation and they're unwilling? I mean, it's astounding, isn't it? It's astounding because it's not just one person here or there. It's this idea that this nation under the guidance of this leadership, this corrupt and polluted and and dead leadership of self-righteousness have caused by and large a blanket of deadness upon the people themselves and they are unwilling to come. Remember, many crowds followed Jesus. And you remember how John records when Jesus got to the place where he said, listen, if you want to follow me, you must eat my flesh and you must drink my blood. So many were offended by such a statement. And they left never to follow him again. They couldn't see who was preaching to them. They were unable to, to, to look beyond the words and to, to grasp the truth of those words and to say to themselves, yes, like the feast, we must feed upon Christ for our salvation. Now notice verse 4 and following. He, Jesus gets into sort of this description of uh, the king's willingness and patience. Notice in verse 4, he says, Begin, he sent out other slaves, saying, Tell those who had been invited, Behold, I have prepared my dinner, my oxen, and my fatted livestock, and all butchered, and everything is ready. Come to the wedding feast. Notice his patience. Notice Jesus is highlighting to these scribes and priests and he's highlighting to us this morning the patience of Almighty God in calling men to faith in Christ. Patience. Brothers and sisters, there's not going to be one person stand before God on judgment day and ever be able to accuse him of impatience. It's not going to happen. There's not going to be any valid human justification for why someone did not embrace Christ, repent of their sins, and then, as our confession this morning, put to work the means of grace for their salvation. There'll be no excuse for it. When God has so graciously, generously provided all that is needed for any to come to Christ... He has sent out his servants. He has sent out his ministers. He has sent out his prophets. He has sent out his apostles and he has sent out his ministers to do what? Call the real people of Abraham to Christ. 
by faith. You look at the history of Israel and it's like an EKG. Highs and really bad lows. And yet, where is the Lord in all of this? He's right there, isn't he? Constantly shepherding them, constantly working with them, constantly sending more prophets, constantly sending more preachers, constantly showing them the way they need to go, the way back to where they need to go, those, those old paths, if you will, constantly trying to corral and him up and protect and guard and preserve and progress his people in righteousness and faith that righteousness that belongs to true faith, in that gospel, in that evangelical will, obedience that we're called to. His patience is demonstrated in verse four. Go, go out. I've got everything ready. Invite them to come, and they'll come. Verse five, but notice they paid no attention and went their way no one I mean, one to his own farm, another to his business, and the rest seized his slaves and mistreated them and killed them. Those verse four, verse five and six. It's like Jesus again. And I get going back to this expose. He's revealing something. He says, "Look, there's really this this indifference that's stifling and malice. What's the indifference?" Well, I'll do it tomorrow, preacher. Jesus, these are all in fine and dandy. These are some really good stories. Enlightening. I'm touched, convicted a little bit. But hey, we'll take care of this next week. And they, what do they do? These indifferent people, what do they do? They, they pay no attention. That is just not imperative. It's not something that they see that is needed and necessary. There's always tomorrow. There's always another day. There's always, well, just not now. I need to repent of these sins. I need to, I need to be mindful of my walk with Christ. I need, I need to, you know, I need to sturdy these things up. I need a, a greater, more disciplined life. Well, it's always next week. It's always later. It's always some other time. Remember, beloved, the idea of the parable is, I mean, to reject the invitation is to reject the king, right? It's not that they're just saying, look, I'm not hungry. I don't want to come to the party. No. To reject the invitation is the rejection of the king. It's an offense. And I've already demonstrated in, to you Several parables back, the moral obligation that any person has when the gospel is presented to them to believe in Christ. It's a moral obligation. It's immoral to turn away from such a gracious invitation to everlasting life. So you have that crowd that's indifferent and they go back to their farms and businesses but then you have the malice crowd you have the 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 intense crowd and what did they do they seized his slaves and mistreated them and killed them 
Their hatred for God is such fever pitch, they cannot even stand to hear the voice of the ministers and the slaves of God calling them to such a gracious feast. They won't have it. And the way they choose to deal with it is to murder the servants, the slaves of God. And that's what Jesus has already accused them of, right? You've, 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 you've basically had your way with every prophet. I'm no different. He's demonstrating what they've already said back in chapter 21. The Pharisees heard this parable. They understood that he was speaking about them and they, were, that they sought to seize him. They feared the people because he, they had considered him to be a prophet. Well, they wanted him. They wanted him dead, but they were scared to do it at that particular time. This is, this is them. And these are the sons of them who did it in the past. And of course, verse 8, uh, down through verse 9, I mean, you can, or verse 8, you can see that uh, the king is enraged, verse 7 and 8, the king is enraged over this, rightly so, rightly so, and he decides to bring swift judgment upon those murderers, which is his prerogative and the, it is the prerogative of God to judge his people. Judgment begins in the household of faith, right? We have that blessed privilege of not just the access and entrance and, and, and practice in this kingdom of grace, if you will, of salvation, but we also have the, the special privilege of the eye of our heavenly Father in Christ examining us. That's a blessing. You know, make no mistake about it, and this application is particularly for the young people here. There may be times when you believe that your uh, mom or your dad whether it's you have both parents or you don't, are too harsh, too hard on you. But in the name of Christ, they are seeking to bring you up in the nurture and admonition of Almighty God. They are seeking to cultivate in you righteousness. Now, now that's external. They can't affect the heart, but they can bring those external pressures that God calls them to do right, upon your life to cultivate that character and those desires, to hone those desires, teach you to discipline yourself, all of those things needed in order for you to grow up and to be a sound, faithful worshiper of Almighty God. That's the goal. So, Take caution in criticizing your parents when they're trying to cultivate in you holiness. Take great caution when you're, try, when you're thinking of criticizing uh, your parents when, when, when they have your best interest at heart, which makes that criticism an even more grievous one. 
because it's not out of meanness that they are corralling you up and, and, and it's, you know, honing you in, reining you in and, and putting you out there. No, that's not, it's not because they want to. It takes a lot of effort and energy to do so. And believe me, I know as a parent, I think, I wish this kid would get it. It would save me a lot of time. It's not something parents relish. It's something that has to be done for Christ's sake. It's a commandment. And this here, our Lord comes in, in the midst of his church. And I'd only take that out of the family and into the church where we are under the inspection of God. Our heavenly father brings to us these ministers of truth. He brings to us the word of God. He gives us the Holy Spirit. And a working conscience to what? Prod us and move us and motivate us and, and, and fashion us into a way that we're walking in holiness before God. And we stay there. Though we might look like a drunk person along the way, stumbling here and there. But we're on that path and God is inspecting us. And God does this. It's, a, it's highly uh, uh, reasonable for the king to inspect his citizens and to begin to judge those who have acted with such lawlessness. And God does that. And he does that to churches when the corruption becomes so deep and so thick and almost insurmountable he may, for that reason, close that church down. Or he may remove the faithful lights in that church and give that body over to themselves. Beloved, the point is that God is dealing with this people in Christ. He is demonstrating to them. He has already told them in the parable previous that God is going to do what? He's going to take away the kingdom and give it to another nation bearing the fruit thereof. That's what he's looking for. The fruit in this parable is their willingness of obedience and love to him. They obey the king because they love the king. They love the king. And they want to spend time with the king. And they are thankful for the king's patience and compassion and mercy. In verse 8, he says, And then his, he said to the slaves, The wedding is ready, but those who were invited were not worthy. Go therefore to the main highways, and as many as you find there, invite to the wedding feast. And those slaves went out into the streets and gathered together all they found, both evil and good. And the wedding hall was filled with dinner guests. Beloved, for the sake of time, I think we'll need to revisit this parable next week. But listen, the Lord will have a people worship and serve him. He will. And it's unfortunate that it's not the ones that have received or been the beneficiaries of so many privileges. 
You know, even when Jesus went out and he sent the disciples out uh, two by two to go out and preach, what did he tell them? He said, go first to the house of Israel. Go to the lost sheep of Israel. Go there first. He wasn't excluding the Gentiles. He just said, start there. What do we see the apostles doing in the book of Acts? What do we see the habit of Paul going into the synagogues and doing what? Preaching Christ. And it was the rejection of the gospel, which is a rejection of Christ, which is a rejection of God, that would send Paul to the Gentiles. And we would often find they're what? Embracing the truth of the gospel. Notorious Sinners coming to Christ through faith and repentance. It's often easier to talk to someone about Christ that is entrenched in sin than it is to talk to some church member who's been in church all their lives, who knows all the ABCs of the doctrine, but does not have a heart of obedience and love for God. Remember, Jesus has already given the parable, right? Who loves most? That was the question he asked. Out of these two, who loves most? And of course, it was the one who had sinned the most. Brothers and sisters, this morning, what had been on my mind all week is the privilege I have. And I'm presenting it to you, the privilege you have of this gospel of grace. I mean, all week I've been ruminating and meditating upon the undeserved aspects of this favor and blessing that I have in Christ and that you have in Christ. And what I want us to see in this parable thus far, we're not going to be able to complete it, is our heavenly Father, our King, is worthy of us taking a moment every Lord's Day, right? But even now, in concentrating upon His patience and compassion for each one of us, You can do that right where you are. You can. And you can praise God right where you are. You can refresh yourself right where you're sitting in your mind and in your heart. It's not that, thank God, I'm not like that sinner. It is, Lord, without your grace, I am that sinner. Without your mercy and patience and compassion, I am that sinner. Because our hearts, beloved, naturally are always willing to what? Burst forth in rebellion.
How many of us this morning even had to struggle paying attention to get here? How many of us even struggle to think, okay, this will be over soon (laughs) and I can go on my day? But those kinds of thoughts, beloved, are the very things that's robbing you of giving thanks to your king for those graces. And we need to acknowledge that. We we don't want to be the indifferent people. We don't want to be ready to go to our own places. Okay, we don't want to work through the motions. We don't want to just go through the process. We want it to be from our hearts, our love, our joy, our passion. It's real. It's who we are. We want to be identified as Christians. A Christ follower, a Christ lover, a Christ server. And let me tell you something. There's no, always, it's always a great time, but there is no better time than in our culture than to stand up for the truth and to be a follower of the living God in Christ. And to put down these foolish, devilish, damnable lies that are all around us. To stand up. And those who will, listen to me, if you do, don't do it out of pride because God will condemn you for it. Do it out of, I am constrained by the love of God to stand up and to speak the truth. And I'll speak it in love, but I will speak it. Compassionate, long-suffering, We have so many valid, good reasons to worship our God outside of just the fact that we possess salvation. Amen? Now, this parable hits them hard. And I pray, beloved, that it has helped us this morning Realign our thinking in our hearts to that compassion and that love, that mercy, that willingness of God to invite people like us to the feast. And we're preparing to take the Lord's Supper. Christ is our feast. And we won't come by faith to eat the body and drink the blood of Christ. Amen? What better thoughts to have in our mind and heart is how our God has brought us to this place, brought us to this point, brought us to this salvation, given us such a Savior, given us such a salvation, given us such a gift, and given us such a hope. Brothers and sisters, prepare yourselves now as we come to take the Lord's Supper. Let's pray. Now, gracious Father, we thank you for the truths we find in this parable of God's infinite compassion and mercy and, Lord, patience, his willingness to save. As we come now to the supper, as we remind ourselves of the work of Christ in the 
the breaking of his body and the shedding of his blood in that, Lord, the the wrath that you had poured out upon him on that cross, Lord, that we would remember that he paid it all. And all to him we owe. And Father, you raised him on the third day to demonstrate that his sacrifice was impeccable. It was perfect. And it paid the price. That we were not bought with gold and silver, but by the precious blood of the Lamb. Father, as we come now to this supper, we pray that you would weld us to that communion and love and joy we have for Christ. Let our hearts be filled with joy. Let it be filled, O Lord, with a, a holy, fiery passion for the things of God and salvation. Lord, we pray that you would hold us and, Lord, nurture us and as a father does his children in Christ. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.